0: Welcome to Design Meets Business, a show that inspires designers to think beyond pixels. I'm your host, Christian Vasile, and on this podcast I sit down with creatives to talk about their stories, lessons they've learned during their careers, and how you can use design to make a bigger impact in your organization. Today I'm talking to Jiri Jarabek. Jiri is a design manager at Intuit, the maker of QuickBooks, TurboTax, and Mint.com. And in today's episode, he talks about doing research when there's not enough time, traps designers fall into when they test prototypes, and about the progression from coming out of school to becoming an entrepreneur designer. Jerry thanks for joining the podcast. Really, really appreciate it. The first season of Design Meets Business is exciting to put together, and I'm glad you wanted to be part of it. So you are an all-around designer who started your career a bit similar to how I did. And that is by coding and playing with Flash <laughs> and all that <laughs> good stuff, <laughs> all the good times. Uh, so before we go into what you do today, you're thinking around design and mm-hmm. all that. Um, tell me a bit about your background, where you're coming from and how did you decide to drop coding for a career in design? Yeah.
1: Uh, and you know what? I, I loved it so much. I thought with the late 90s, And early noughties, what we witnessed was a democratization of the internet. We we witnessed a time when getting online and coding was one of the easiest things someone in their late late teens or early 20s could learn just like that. There were so many of these resources popping up. And I just loved it, this democratization of something awesome like this. And yeah, so I, I went on. I did coding, I also did design. This job title almost disappeared these days. I was web designer. And you don't get too many web designers these days. No, <laughs> I you don't hear about that anymore. <laughs> no, right? Is, is,
0: yeah. yeah. UX and product.
1: Exactly. I never managed to a webmaster. I always wanted to be a webmaster. You know, that, sounds, that sounds so cool. I never was a webmaster. <laughs>
0: well, I think your current <laughs> job is cooler than being a webmaster, but I mean, yeah. <laughs> to each his own.
1: <laughs> Probably. Yeah, there you go. So as I evolved in working with clients, most of my early career was spent on agency side. And I was working for some pretty awesome clients in, in some pretty awesome agencies. But what I started realizing was a lot of the digital products or, or websites we, we produced at the time, they were based on what you would call requirements from the client. And and ultimately, we were meant to serve a audience, a customer. But we were not really <laughs> looking at what the customer needs or... How to design the product in a way that really satisfies those needs of the customer. And so I started learning about that. And I learned about UX. I learned about interaction design. And I fell in love because I realized there's so much knowledge accumulated in that ended area that could help me with getting on with the job. And so this is when I started switching. I, I basically switched in my heart first. And then, then I, my, my career switch followed, followed you know, a little bit later.
0: How did you find that transition from a job that is very logical, the one of coding and I remember Flash and all those good times, to something that at least when you started as a designer wasn't as logical as your job is now, right? This was more about feelings and how things look and how they feel. It wasn't as much about business goals in the beginning. So how was that transition going from one role to the other one?
1: I found it actually really easy. Maybe I'm a little bit (laughs) weird. I always found the interaction design and UX side to be fairly logical too, to understand what the customer wants to achieve. What is the goal? Why they're coming to this place? How then apply well-documented patterns, validate usability, understand how the customer might be Challenged in their path, you know, to put items in a shopping basket and, and check out. To me, it made perfect sense. My brain didn't suffer as much, and I also at the time when I was still coding, that was the time of CSS hacks, <laughs> mind you. It was a time when I was trying to get the code working and looking similar in IE6 and a uh, an Opera, and, <laughs> and and Chrome was just like a little little thing somewhere on the horizon, <laughs> slowly appearing, I suppose. So. It it was quite messy at the time as well. So, <laughs> I I didn't see it as a like a hu- huge massive change.
0: Yeah. Design is messy, isn't it? If the process is clean, then there's something wrong there. I mean, I guess the more complex the project is, the more messy you expect the process to be from taking a product from a concept to finals. And I guess that's one of the things that I'd like to move into talking about. Because Mm -hmm. when you look from the outside, you see just what's above the iceberg. You see the visual design, you see the copy, and you think that's what design is. But we both know that the hard work actually goes on behind. Mm -hmm. You've worked a lot in agencies. And I know that when you work in agencies, it's more often than not all about delivering fast so you can move on to the next client. How did you balance that need of taking your time to do things properly and working on that discovery and understanding customers with the need of the clients to get something delivered in a week or two or three? In the agency world, you don't really have a lot of time.
1: Yeah, I gave you one example that is so funny if I look back at it. It always makes me smile. So I was working for this agency that doesn't exist anymore. It was fairly sizable London based agency called Fortune Cookie. Great babe. And yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But but we we were serving some pretty awesome clients and the team was a dream team. I, I joined there as a junior UX designer. I felt really privileged to be joining such a fantastic team, such a fantastic boss at the time. It, I loved it. and I was really looking up to all my senior UX designer colleagues and I was so hungry to learn from them. One of the clients that we were designing for was National Rail Inquiries, which is in the UK. It is a, a system to get your travel information from uh, before. Uh city Mapper came for <laughs> and 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 when the when train line was really crappy yeah you, know, yeah you would you would always you would always look to national rail inquiries and a lot of people do still today and so one of the products that we were working on was the mobile app. when I joined the team working on the app, it was already released. the team was working on it for a while. I joined them later, and I was tasked with designing alerts. what happens when you know something bad goes on on the train line and there's a delay or there's a disruption, and how do we let the customer know? And I started designing that, and there was, as you say, there was very little time for some involvement of customers, as it typically is in the agency land, or or, or at least used to be at the time. And so I got really creative. <laughs> I was taking a train every morning to work.
0: <laughs> you did your own, <laughs> you you research on your you you research yourself.
1: Yeah, and and you must know. And probably everyone who listens to this must know that talking to someone on the public transport in the UK is a no no. No-no. No-no, right? Yeah. Even just looking at someone is a no-no. Yeah. <laughs> You're risking being killed. Yes. But <laughs> I, I was like, hey, stranger, I've got this prototype here. <laughs> it is meant to make your journey to work easier. That was amazing because once the once the people understood, hey, this will make my life easier, they were like, okay. I'm going to give you some feedback. So I did this a couple of times. And, and, and basically I, had, I, I bypassed the, the constraint of not having the time to do it during my normal working hours. And I suppose it's a little bit unfair to do that. But I was so hungry. I was so passionate about bringing that user-centric perspective into the project that I just did it anyway. I did it on, on public transport. You know, I'm cursed for life probably. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, well, it's a good curse, I think. <laughs> What's happening when you bring all this research home and then you've done maybe a diary study, maybe some eye tracking, maybe some gorilla testing on, on the train in the morning. You've got all this research and then you need to create a product based off of that. Mm-hmm. How do you transition from having all this information to actually putting something on a piece of paper or in Photoshop back then or a sketch or whatever uh, way you're doing it?
1: There are many different ways a designer can go about that. I really fell in love with the way how this is, done at at Intuit but right now. We distill a crystal clear customer problem. Customer problem is your sort of a needle sharp definition of what the customer wants to achieve, what is the behavior they are doing instead, and what is the root cause of that problem and how it makes them feel. And it really needs to get to the bottom of the root cause. And if it does, then what we could do of the back of this customer problem definition, is we can imagine what is the best possible solution, what is the best possible ideal experience, not a solution, I correct myself, an experience. And we call it ideal state. And we don't describe a solution in that. We describe the ideal experience. So we say, in the perfect world, you know, the experience would look like this. And the, the, the actual change to, to the customer's life would be this. And it needs to be something that is measurable. So we can quantify them later, and we also declare how this makes them feel, and so we have these two inputs of the back of that synthesis of these research insights. We have the custom problems, we have the ideal state, and of course we have the various behavioral insights synthesized in, in the, as you, as you do in various da, da, uh, decks and you know <laughs> diagrams and so we we take this and then we just go through the your your standard double diamond, we diverge. In ideation, we converge, we get to some specific solutions. Then we say, okay, so given we have these solutions, what are the biggest assumptions we are making that have to be true for this to work? And then we just go about and we experiment in, in the most rapid, rapidest way, if that's the word. Yeah, um, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. we get it, we get
1: it. <laughs> um, in, in the In the most fastest way possible, we just experiment. And then once we clear out all these unknowns, then we go about designing that thing and delivering it with our engineering partners.
0: So tell me about this fastest way of experimenting. How do you do that at Intuit? Because Intuit is quite a large company with, I would assume, a lot of resources. So you probably have a very different way of going by doing this than, say, a smaller company would. So what's your? how does your testing, let's say, look like?
1: Actually, I don't think it is about the size that makes a difference. I think it's a culture. And the culture at Intuit is so custom-centric that the culture really determines how we do that. If you are familiar with, and I, I would suggest to everyone, we get very familiar with the Lean Startup by Eric Ries. We pretty much use it as a, well, not a Bible, but we get a lot of guidance from that. We We run experiments to validate assumptions, not to validate designs at that stage, at that experimentation stage. So we would potentially run a fake door test on the website or on product. We would run really rapid experiments with just a couple of sketches on and paper and we would be looking for a strong emotional reactions. We wouldn't be, of course, at this stage looking at usability or anything like that. We would be just like really looking at concepts. Does this concept work? And, of course, you, you, get, you get tests of various fidelity. You could have a diary study with a prototype. I did that in one of my previous jobs, and we, we ran a test for four weeks in total. And then you have some really high-quality data about how people start using it and if they actually keep using it after the initial spike of excitement fades off. Or you can run some really rapid testing of some of the examples I gave. Another another really good example, I we are doing very often is concierge chest, when you would have a system that sort of looks like it's fully working system, it looks like automated, AI-powered, miracle, but actually there are a couple of guys sitting behind the screens and connecting all the dots. <laughs> and so if you have a higher fidelity test, you, you need to invest more effort, but you have higher confidence at the back of that in your concept. If your start running with some pen and paper sketches, of course, you can do this really quickly but you don't have so much confidence in the validation.
0: Now, I'm really happy I've asked this question. I didn't know where you were going to go with it, but it it just sounds to me that you're following Eric Ries' book and that's it. It's not more complicated than that. It's following basic, simple ways of making sure that what your assumptions are or what your prototypes look like are validated. And the, the reason I'm saying this is I often look at portfolios or talk to people about design and they do a lot of complex stuff. They use all these new frameworks appearing out of nowhere that I haven't heard about. And they try all these methodologies when actually it's not that complicated. It's, it, there is, it's the basic stuff. And if a company like Intuit that's really big and has a design culture at the core of it simply just follows the basics, then probably that should be the advice for any company out there, instead of trying to do too much, simply follow a very simple guide mm-hmm. and and try to make that part of your process. So I'm really happy you mentioned uh, Eric Chris's book. It's, oh, yeah. uh, it's it's been uh, it's it's great.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic. It, fa- it's, it is it's fantastic. Of course, if you have a big bet and you are going to invest for next 10 months on your product roadmap into something massive you might want to get a bit more confidence you would you would run maybe a combination of three different experiments to validate your business assumptions and after that validates then you could start looking at your customer assumptions as well that that would be the specific to a specific solution there are two traps that designers typically fall into when they are running experiments one is they they mix up conceptual testing and usability testing and of course Like at the stage of testing concepts, there's no point of testing usability whatsoever. And there is, the the second trap is, designers try to test everything. Often I see that, that's a mistake, there's no need to it. There are examples, like many of the assumptions that designers declare as assumptions are actually good assumptions. We can see these things working elsewhere in the industry. And if we see something similar working somewhere else, well, it's not a complete assumption that 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 thing is unknown, right? We can learn from elsewhere.
0: Let's talk a few minutes about these two traps because I, I think they're interesting. So especially the first one, let's let's dig a bit deeper into that.
1: So when, when designers test concepts, basically they're trying to validate whether the assumption that has to be true for a specific idea is correct or not. They are, they're testing a big idea. They're not testing the interface. They, they shouldn't be testing whether the button is red or yellow or on the right or on the left and what is the specific layout of the page and if someone understands what this individual page says, they need to be testing whether a huge underlying question about whether this entire idea is viable is true. Yeah.
0: So that's where you would do some sort of, let's say a fake door testing, mm-hmm. right? Just to try to see if people would be interested in a new feature. For example,
1: right? That, that's one of the ways how to do that. Another way how to how to do that is potentially even... even the, like if, if someone really wants to do something low fidelity, even just sketches on paper or some conceptual illustration of the concept can be used. But you're not looking at the at the feedback on sort of the granularity of of the single button. You're looking at, okay, I see massive value in this. And you are looking for this positive reaction in the person as opposed to, oh, I'm confused by this text on this button here. You know, I really like these sort of rapid, uh, rapid fire tests with pen and paper. They don't give too much confidence, but they give you a thumbs up, thumbs down sort of. Because if you don't feel, if you don't see emotional reaction, then you are not striking the right chord at all. You need to, you need, you need to see a reaction. If, if the reaction is amazingly positive, then probably you can, you can persevere. If the reaction is extremely negative, then clearly you are onto something as well. You know this is important for someone. You are just doing it wrongly, and you have to persevere again and try to fix it. You know, in a better way. If you if if your action is like meh, then there's probably no point.
0: <laughs> and it's the end of the road for for that that idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's interesting because in some of the companies I used to work in before, uh, there was a lot of focus on doing usability testing, and I guess that's the that's okay, all good and that. But if you can design a feature in the best way possible. But if nobody's interested in that feature, then you've wasted your time. So I guess Mm -hmm. before putting together all those prototypes and doing all this usability testing, you want to do, as you called it, conceptual testing to first figure out if whatever it is you're building is actually interesting and useful for your customers. And this takes me to the next point that I wanted to talk about. You have this idea or this concept about the three types of designers, that there are three types of designers in the world. And uh, when we talked about this, uh, I thought that was really interesting. So I, wanna, I want to uh, talk a bit through that. Mm-hmm. And um, after you explain to us what the three designers are, talk a bit about how you get from one to the other. So this is
1: something I observed over the last 15 years in the industry is that the designers, around the time when they are a little more junior, they tend to really obsess about tools and visual style and about sort of these trends of what is cool at the time. So 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 we get designers arguing about whether it's sketch or figma, whether it's neomorphism or skeuomorphism or, or whatever. This is nothing new though. Like if you look at the history of art design and architecture, this is happening since literally ancient times. You can have a look at the at the Doric column in the ancient Greek and the Ionic column and the Corinthian column. And you see, oh, you know, they, these guys went from very stark ornamental aesthetics. The same happens with, for example, Renaissance and, and Baroque. The same happens with Art Nouveau. And then the reaction to that is constructivism and modernism. So we, we see these trends of like high, highly ornamental style and, and, and not so high ornamental style in the history. So it's nothing new just get designers just get really like passionate about that and this is what I call artist designer they're really obsessed about the tools and they're obsessed about the style the second type of designer I call designer designer for the lack of better determination I don't I just don't know how to how to call that. maybe I should call them experience designer because really they they focus on the experience they just fall in love with the concept of user experience and customer experience so much that this is all they want to do they really obsess about delivering that amazing experience and they just can't get over it. It is the entire goal of what they want to do and we can't really be angry with them for it. <laughs> that's the beauty. That's, that's what, what I, makes many of us motivated to de- design something great. You know, this is why we exist in the world. So, so these are the designers design, uh, designer, designers, or the experienced designers who really obsessed about that. And then there's a third type. There's actually also a fourth type that I didn't mention. There's a third type, and these are entrepreneur designers. And these are the designers who who start exhibiting the four mindsets or four behaviors. The first of these behaviors is how they choose problems to work on. They choose problems based on what is the biggest unsolved customer problem. Ideally, this is something really painful for the customer. The second would be, is this something that is viable in the business? Is this something where there is big enough serviceable market that we can actually obtain? And this this does sort of this this realization just doesn't happen at once. This is typically a spiral of of testing and figuring out: Oh, are we on top of this problem? Yes. And can we deliver this problem to this market? Yes. And actually, if we do the investment, does it provide a good enough return? What is our strategy there? Are we going for growth? So are we trying to grow our customer base, whatever cost? Or are we chasing revenue? In which case, we are probably looking at customers to stay with us for longer, to be paying customers for longer and provide a really good experience. So these three things have to come together. So this is the first behavior, how they choose problems. The second behavior is giving up on perfectionism. <laughs> so they are, they're kind of like saying goodbye to, that, to those experienced designers who just try for the perfect experience ever and instead, instead of focusing on delivering this amazing experience that is perfect, focus on delivering value to the organization and to the customers as frequently as they can. It's about Suddenly, it's not about the amazing architectural solution, but it's about where the value really is and how can I quickly deliver it so we improve the life of our customer and we improve uh, the, the success of the business. The third one is applying their design superpowers on other stuff than just design. Now, designers have these amazing superpowers they obtain through their career. And these typically are things like, I take stuff that is intangible, and that is an idea, and it's in people's heads, and I can turn it into something that others can literally see. So they can turn intangible into tangible. They can rapidly validate. So we talked about validation. We talked about rapid experimentation. So this is another superpower. They can take an unknown, use this superpower, And generate some data. This is another superpower. For example, so applying these superpowers, not on design problems, but any organization problems, any business problems, this is the third attribute. And the the final one is focus on measurable difference to customers' lives. So in this one, the designer really starts taking care of the outcomes, not just outputs. The outputs are the amazing designs, right? This is that grand vision. But now the designer is really passionate about what is that measurable difference they're making to the life of a customer, to the life of the business. What can be measured? How can I deliver that? What it distills to? And for that to be something that the designer can apply, they have to really understand the customer problem so they can define, okay, this is how we are going to resolve this problem. And... In the core of that solution, there is this customer benefit that we are going to deliver, and it has to be quantifiable. And that's the point when the designer can be like, yes, we can measure this. We can measure how much time we save to this customer. For example, over the course of last year, through various design activities and various product activities, my team was able to save over 260,000 hours to QuickBooks customers preparing their VAT. And we can quantify it like this. So much time saved. This is a huge customer benefit. And so these are the attributes. Measurable difference, how they choose problems, ditching perfectionism, and using the superpowers on other stuff than just designing.
0: So I guess ideally, everyone would hope that they would become this entrepreneurial designer or entrepreneur designer, as you called it. But I think everyone knows that it's not as easy to go from the artist designer, to the experienced designer, to the entrepreneur designer. There are some steps you need to take. And getting out of school, for example, if you have a design education, is probably not enough to get you even to the experienced designer level. It's You're going to become an artist designer for the first few years of your career because that's the natural progression. So how do you go from the first one to the second one, and then to the third type, to become this person who truly understands the business and what the business is about and how they can use these superpowers that they gather throughout their career to do some good in the world.
1: Well, this is an answer that many won't like, but I don't think there are any shortcuts. <laughs> um, actually, you mentioned design education and I you know, there are many voices that, that would say, hey, in design education, you don't, you don't get enough about the business. And it's just this theory and I'm going to say something that could be quite radical and potentially many people will not like this. And I'm going to say, I think this is what the universities, universities need to be. They need to teach the underlying theory that is detached from the practice because then it is universally applicable. The, the industry changes in waves you know, every couple of years. It's just different. But if at university, there are big underlying principles taught then this is something that can equip designer for life. That aside, how to go about progressing from the artist designer to the entrepreneur designer. And by the way, the fourth stage that I mentioned is a leader designer. (laughs) So how, how how to progress there. And they just have to understand these underlying concepts. They have to understand what is the big customer problem, how to define it, how to distill it, how to understand it. Without that, they would be just skipping ahead and it would be fake. So they have to they have to do it, you know, Karate kid style, polishing windows to learn the moves. The same goes for the design superpowers. Well, the designers will not be able to start applying design superpowers on other problems than design problems unless they learn the superpowers in the first place. So, again, you know, look skywalker in this in, in the swamp. <laughs> uh, type type of work. I, I always wanted to be that Yoda that is being carried on the back of younger designers. I, I have yeah, this yeah. picture in my mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the only, that should the only be a new my...
0: avatar. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. The, the only one where I think we could be much better and we could go much faster is data. And I have seen many companies just not being very good with data. There's nothing like working with an awesome, smart analyst on your team. I have an amazing analyst, he is worth his weight in gold. Hello, Brandon. (laughs) Uh, I'm sending, sending my regards this way. It's amazing because then what you could do is get help of a partner like this and you could start making connections between customers' behavior and data that you really need to see for determining whether you're getting business outcomes or not. I give you a real specific example from our world. We established that customers that use QuickBooks who also connect their business bank account typically stick around for longer because they are getting much more value from the product. What it means is that if they stick around for longer, basically, this is a retention. Retention is very important because it leads to higher average revenue for that customer. And that also means that we are improving our ratio of the cost of acquiring that customer and the lifetime value they provide. And these are some of the key business metrics that we would be looking at to determine whether we are doing well or not. So having a good analyst can help us to really look for causations between behavior and product and these business impacts. Then what we could do as a team is to say, okay, so we are going to invest in improving this experience of connecting a bank. So we enable more people to connect their bank. So they get this amazing value. So they stick for longer. And so we have a higher end
0: So there's this circle of benefit, I guess, for the company and for the customers as well, that your analysts have helped you discover. And then you as a design team or a product team just tries to bring it home.
1: Yeah. And so I realized that I didn't really answer your question about how a designer can do that, how how they can sort of up-level. They have to work with smart partners. They have to collaborate. And they have to understand the concept of causation between behavior and, and business outcomes. But really, design is about partnerships and collaboration. So if there is one takeaway, that maybe maybe that's...
0: You've said something that I fully agree with. And um, sometimes I see designers starting in their careers, and the first thing they do is they go and freelance. I- I've done that myself. And looking back, the times when I've learned the most were the times when I worked in product teams. So I always say to people at the beginning of their career, try to go and work in a company, in a product team around mm-hmm. people you can learn from, collaborate with, because that's what's going to allow you to build those superpowers. And then five, 10 years later, you can actually go and become a freelancer because you've you've got that toolbox, but you've got to learn it from somewhere. So I think what you're saying is really accurate. You're learning a lot of these things by working in product teams. And design is a team sport. Isn't that what they say? And I, I truly believe that. And um, I, I wish sometimes we as an industry would do a bit more towards the people coming in as juniors and we would give them a few more opportunities to just join our teams and learn.
1: Yeah, I don't think we are doing enough because there's this picture that many designers have in mind. You know, the designer demigod, the, you know they want to be the Dieter Rams, you know, sitting on the golden throne of bones of, you know, other designers, I don't know what. Uh, or they picture... Johnny Ive making like all these amazing decisions about design or Norman Foster or like whoever is there, Mark Newson, whoever is their design Demigold. So, but it's not like that. It's really a team sport. And I think we should admire work or, of, of these great designers, but we shouldn't aim for being the lo- lone wolves, you know, designers who who are masters of everything and tell everyone what to do. I don't think that's this is not how it should work.
0: But I also think that, you can look at, at these demigods, as you've called them, and you know that, sure, they brought their creativity, but mm. they still worked in teams. Absolutely. Journey Ive didn't work in a cave, yeah. and came,
1: right? <laughs> I'll picture that. Wow. That'll be something. Uh. I
0: can imagine, yeah. It would have probably a beautiful cave. But, yeah. Yeah. but yeah. the point is, they're still working in teams. Sure, they have some incredible creativity, and what they bring to the table is fantastic, but they still work in teams. That's, yeah. that's just such an important point.
1: So you, know, you, are, you are absolutely right. Because, yeah, John, Johnny Ive is not in his, like, white, white cave, you know, glossy white cave. He, no, he's not, actually. And I think this is a straw that, you know, these, these are the demigods that, that are so good at design. You know, they are, they are team players. They have teams. They are leaders. They are people, they are people managers as well, right? <laughs> they, they have this. So, and ultimately, as, as someone scales to, to leadership, they ultimately, yes, they are zooming in on craft, Yes, but their impact comes through scale and comes through teams and comes from nurturing other designers and helping other designers grow. This is, this is how design leaders work. And so I think if, if there is a picture of, of this dem, design demigod, you know, I, I think it's a fake picture.
0: I agree. So talking about leadership and leading designers, how do you, on a daily basis, help your team at Intuit move more towards those entrepreneur designers from whatever they are in their career.
1: Yeah, we do it as um, we work through this. We follow these four things that I outlined before. This is basically how we work. And if a junior designer joins the team, we ensure that we infuse them in this working. It doesn't happen as a big bang. They still have to learn. They, They still have to obtain these superpowers. You know, they still have to understand it's a path. So they, they do a little bit of that, you know, car hit polishing windows, as I said. But ultimately, there are the other designers who are already doing it. And everyone basically learns from everyone. And my role is to ensure that the individual designers get enough coaching, that they get enough reflection, that I give them feedback where appropriate, but also I give them enough space to go and do their own thing and actually fail. I suppose one role of a manager isn't to ensure that no one fails. My role is to ensure that everyone learns. And sometimes the best learning comes from failures. So I have to make these decisions between do I let this person fail now? And are they going to learn from it? <laughs> or, or or where's the safety net? Or you know how that works?
0: So you're saying it's about putting the right process, the right design framework in place. So whoever joins the company they will all have to follow the same design process, I guess, and then that's mm. what you mentioned earlier is polishing the the, the windows or whatever the the uh, the metaphor is. But it's about as long as you put the right process in place, then the people who will join your team will sooner or later learn to move more towards that mindset of an entrepreneur designer, right?
1: Mm-hmm. It's it's really a mindset rather than a process. Our a process looks like a skeleton. We have very strong backbone that is really really well defined. That defines the, the the key parts of the process, the, the really impactful big chunks. But then the individual ribs and bones around, every senior designer, for example, can determine to themselves. They can basically take the toolbox and assemble their process appropriately to a appropriate project based on their own expertise. They can swap methods. They can swap tools for whatever they judge to be appropriate. And I trust, I trust them. To be honest, I'm so lucky that I work with such a smart guys. I don't really need to. Intervene there so much; they are, they're all very happy to like assemble their own processes. But we have this backbone, and this backbone is is so awesome that we can really rely on it. And the, the entire skeleton just like hangs off the backbone, basically.
0: And I guess by doing that, by not setting the clear path for everyone and letting them verge to the left and to the right, they also feel more ownership of the work. Mm -hmm. It's not because they're not order takers. They are working on the back of a very well-defined process, but they can go to left and to the right as they see fit and use their experiences. And I guess that's also where you're learning uh, throughout your career. It's not when you're following orders. So um, that's great. Right. We're approaching the end. I have two more questions and I'm asking everyone on the show this. So uh the first one is what is one thing you wish more designers would know?
1: Yeah. I wish more designers would be focused on oh that 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 two things. Is it cheating?
0: <laughs> uh, you know, cheating is allowed. On this <laughs> <Okay>. show, <laughs> cheating is allowed. Go with yeah. two.
1: So the first thing is I wish designers know more how to be humble, how to, how to keep listening, how to be open, how to challenge everything they know at all times. You know, my approach is strong opinions, held lightly. And I wish, I wish more designers would be like that. And not just in their conversations with customers, but with conversations with their partners, with their collaborators. I believe that if someone is humble to acknowledge that they can be wrong almost at all times, then they are set up for success. Because they will learn, they will scale, they will improve, they will grow, they'll become better. That's the first one. The the, the second one, my my cheating here is, I wish more designers actually knew all that amazing underlying knowledge base that defines our industry. For example, speaking of interaction design, there's so much knowledge accumulated since the early years of interaction design that basically originated from human factors about how to design cockpits for planes. That's that's, that's, that's the... Like the, the cockfits and the grand, yeah. grand, of, of that. so. If we if we have this knowledge, that really equips us so well.
0: Fantastic, thank you. And then the last question is: How do you reckon the future of design as an industry looks like?
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. We are all going to get replaced by robots. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm not sure. I buy that. I'm yeah. just not sure. I buy
1: that. <laughs> I, I I think we are. Look, you know, I have seen. Was it this week? Last week? There was this experiment done by the Art Lebedev Studio in Russia, and they created this artificial designer AI, and they let this non-person work on actual real client problems for a year, and no one recognized this. Wow! This uh, this uh, this AI designer designed logos. Like you can't really talk about brand identities because brand is so complex thing. But they designed lo- this this designer this designer. Yeah, I called it designer designed logos, and you can check them on, on the Art Lebedev website, and it just looks it looks like a David Carson <laughs> copycat. As, uh, as my boss looked at it and was like, oh, this looks like David Carson. So, yeah, basically, Art Lebedev cloned David Carson. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, so seriously, what it's going to look like? It's going to look like exactly as the industry looked always. We are going to be understanding the needs of our customers, we are going to be understanding what are the needle-sharp pain in the eye of our customers. yeah, And we are going to be resolving this. And we are going to be applying our design superpowers, not just on design problems, but on the organizational problems and on the business problems. And then that's how we become leaders.
0: Fantastic. Jerry, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for pleasure joining the mine. show. And uh, is there anything that you want to mention to everyone listening? You know about where you're working or anything else you want to mention before we we say goodbye?
1: Yeah, I'm going to mention two things. I work for Intuit. Intuit's probably the most customer centric organization on the on this planet and in the solar system. Check it out. You know, you <laughs> big words. It, but once you start, yeah, yeah. I, I I mentioned the Eric Greis book. Read it carefully, guys. You will not believe how many times Intuit is mentioned there as a good example for how these things should be done. <laughs> Check out Intuit. We are we're constantly hiring designers, if not in the UK, then for sure in the US and around the gro- globe. And second, yes, I'm not hiring right now, but I might be hiring later in this year. So if you are passionate about design, I really want to hear from you. Ping me on, on LinkedIn or on Twitter or anywhere and I'm always so passionate about meeting great designers who have their own opinion and who, who, who are passionate about design. So, yeah, ping me and I'll be very happy.
0: Fantastic. We're going to put all your links in the show notes so people can easily find you there. Jiri, again, thank you so much for joining the show and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll catch up soon. Thanks, Christian. Thanks. Cheers. All right. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to the show and since you've made it this far, I hope you found this useful. And if you did, you should know there's much more content just like this on the way. So if you want to learn more about how designers can impact businesses, please consider subscribing. And before I say goodbye, remember that you can find show notes and links for this episode and others on our website designmeetsbusiness.co.
1: Catch you in the next one.